is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. We have to be clear with President Putin. Russian forces have seized control of part of a sovereign country. Today, five of the UK's top military movers and shakers in and out of uniform tell us why Putin spells danger, why we need a new brigade in Germany, and why it's time to take the long and not the short-term approach to a new defence review. We start in the United States, where Defence Secretary Philip Hammond's been talking Crimea, Ukraine and what can be done to bounce Russia off its dangerous track. Priscilla Huff from Feature Story News heard his speech in Washington and joins us now. Hello, Priscilla. What did Mr Hammond have to say about Putin's action in Crimea? Well, he made it very clear this was topic number one for his meetings with U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. What was kind of interesting was that the two men kind of shied away from the question that's in the back of everyone's minds, whether there'll be some kind of a military response. But they made it completely clear uh, that this is unacceptable to the West. This is unacceptable to NATO allies. And this is something that NATO allies should be looking to figure out how they can work together and they can have perhaps exercises and other ways to work together in the regions closer to Ukraine. So he was really clear about how he and the American, his American counterpart really feel about what Vladimir Putin has done with Crimea and Ukraine. We now face the very real prospect of a significant regression in those relations for many years to come. This is not an outcome we seek, but we have to be clear with President Putin. Russian forces have seized control of part of a sovereign country, violating its territorial integrity. The so-called referendum in the Crimea was an affront to democracy and Russia's annexation of Crimea was illegal. And Priscilla, what did he say about the role of NATO? Well, this is something that was quite interesting. It echoed a lot what uh, NATO's Anders Falgrasmussen said last week in Washington. He had just been in town, that this is a real wake-up call for NATO, that countries really need to understand a couple of different things, uh, that European nations need to understand why the Americans are asking questions, why the Americans are saying, hey, we're fully invested in NATO, why aren't you fully invested in NATO, and why there needs to be an increase in defense spending that... There's still situations in the world that the alliance will be called upon uh, to really treat and deal with issues in their own neighborhood, as has been highlighted by uh, the crisis in Ukraine over Crimea and that political situation there so close to NATO's doorstep. And he really feels that they need to focus on this with their summit coming up in just a short period of time. When we meet in Wales in September, NATO needs to grasp these challenges. And with the current events in Ukraine as a backdrop, reassert the pivotal role of NATO in our collective security and demonstrate that we are prepared to put our money where our mouths are. And I understand he also had a bit of a dig at those who undermined the so-called special relationship. He did. He uh, mentioned a couple of different times that he was really irritated uh, 
primarily at members of the media, I would guess, but also possibly at U.S. Uh, former U.S. Defense Secretary Bob Gates, who has a new book out uh, that, you know, for a long time, uh, based on the long history between the United States and the United Kingdom, that there really is a special relationship between these two countries. They really work together well. And he really highlighted how much the two militaries can work together, how they work together really well in NATO because they've got interoperability, they share weapon systems and he was really expressing a lot of frustration that he feels that other people are trying to tell a different story which just isn't true uh, and that really the story is that you know the U.S. and the United Kingdom are working together. He even answered really specific questions about, for example, one missile system, the Tomahawk system. And he basically said, you know, we would know first if this was actually being canceled because, you know, this is something we both use and it's in both of our interests. We find this a useful weapon. So why are you asking me this question? It doesn't play into the story you're trying to tell. All right, Priscilla Huff from Feature Story News in Washington. Thank you for joining us today. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is with us. Um, hello, Christopher. Why has Chuck Hagel and Philip Hammond, why have they met? Surely the story is about the EU and NATO in Brussels. That's the response story, isn't it? But, I mean, what happens is that Hammond and Hagel do meet, or the defence secretaries do meet anyway. Um, is there likely to be a military response, not in suggestions of putting troops on the ground in in uh, Ukraine or anything like that. But how do you coordinate the message? How do you coordinate, for example, uh, using intelligence gathering, uh, which the United Kingdom and America are very sort of, they're joined at the hip. And when he talks about the special relationship uh, and about, you know, there is this closeness. Don't forget, the United States has forces based in the United Kingdom. Mm. One of the most important intelligence gathering operations of the United States over Europe, including Ukraine, including Russia, is based in the United Kingdom. Uh, the United Kingdom is buying F-35 aircraft for the two carriers. So it really is a very special commercial and political and military relationship. Mm. Don't forget the politics for the moment. Indeed. And, and what President Obama said in Brussels, though, what do you make of that? He went as far as he could go, as they say uh, in Oklahoma, uh, because one of the problems of when Obama speaks, that is him speaking against Putin. He is going to be, every other country is going to say, it doesn't matter what we say, it doesn't matter what our prime ministers, our foreign mm. secretaries or defence secretaries say, what Obama has to say really matters. And frankly... It did seem to be very much indicating it's going to be about economic sanctions and that's the way they're going to apply the pressure and that's the way Russia's going to feel it. I think, that, I think the most important bit that comes out of what Obama's saying, and if you think also what uh, Philip Hammond has said, he said, there, uh, I think the words were, it's is, is going to be a significant regression in relations with uh, Russia and that's going to go on for many years to come and I think what we're really talking about is the West and Europe in particular having to rethink completely the long-term relationship with, 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 mm. with Putin's Russia. So it seems both Europe and America were taken by surprise by President Putin's actions. Earlier this week, our reporter Rosie Layden spoken to Sir Tony Brenton, Britain's former ambassador in Moscow and even he didn't see it coming. Yes, well, I was surprised by the fact that they launched the operation at all. I mean, the Russia that I knew when I was working there was a very cautious, uh, risk-averse place. And indeed, Mr Putin, whom I saw a fair amount of, was a very cautious, risk-averse man. So it was, came as a great surprise when they launched this operation. Do you think the, the West are right to be concerned about possible further expansion into eastern Ukraine or even Moldova? Crimea, for many, many reasons, was very easy, very straightforward. 
None of the other places on the European map are anywhere near as easy. Um, the Russians have had a Western demonstration of concern through the sanctions we've adopted. And I think they will be very cautious about proceeding on from Crimea, from Crimea to expansionism anywhere else. Christopher, I I'm surprised. He's surprised. It's remarkable, isn't it? I, it, it, it you know, um, OK, uh, Tony Brenton is, right, is not right alongside the Joint Intelligence Committee and what's mm. coming out of MI6. But certainly as early as September, early September last year, uh, there were alarm bells ringing in Whitehall. And when I went to Washington, also yeah. in Washington, say, what is Putin up to? I, I remember and us having conversations on this program about it, talking absolutely. about President Putin wanting to consolidate his power. And, show and what happened and where the surprise should have ended was when the people started gathering in the square. And that was the beginning of, of something which was going to change. Mm -hmm. And the Russians are going to look at that and say, hey, listen, I thought we had a deal on this. So we're, I think, I think <coughs> unless, of course... That what he is telling us is something which is shouldn't be surprised to a lot of people who study intelligence, and that is since World War Two, out of the two hundred and fourteen events which the British have had to get involved with either military or high level po politics, only five have been predicted. That's an incredible figure, isn't it? So the G8 is now the G7, but Satoni goes on to say that this has meant this week's summit on the protection of nuclear materials has been less effective. Because, of course, if anywhere is a threat to the loss of nuclear materials, it's Russia. Um, and that makes the point, really, that you can't, as the Prime Minister has been suggesting, isolate Russia. Russia is a crucial component to an awful lot of bits of international business, Iran, Syria, all of that. We can't just cut them out of it if we're going to achieve successful action on these things. So, OK, we're angry about what they've done. We want to demonstrate that there are real costs to what they've done and to them contemplating doing any more. But finally, we're going to have to get back to doing business with them. Christopher, he does have a point there, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Um, and we're back to something where we might have been about two years ago when people were starting to rethink... Uh, how do you deal with Putin? Because you remember Putin did a swap. He became he was then Prime Minister, mm, and then he, went, he, he got back into the Kremlin. I think the message from this is twofold. One, we're going to have to rethink, as I was saying earlier, how we deal with Russia. But that doesn't mean, say, you're going to get brutal and you're going to do things that you can't actually pull off. you just got to say, listen, there's a, new, there's a new lesson to be learned here. The second thing, which is fascinating, and that is what Putin has done has pulled together some of the fence-sitters within the EU and within the NATO alliance. And don't forget... They've done quite a favour in many it's respects. It's done a favour in quite a bit. And one other thing it's done. Uh, it has uh, knocked on the head the argument for people who said, let's not renew Trident. I think that uh, debate has gone off the table. So, no military intervention so far, but could there be? Earlier this week, I spoke to former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett, who thinks an aggressive Russia should mean some British troops should stay in Germany. I've taken the figure of 3,000 being about the size of another deplorable brigade. And given that we've got 12,000 troops in Germany, um, my proposal is that we leave 3,000 of them there in well-found barracks uh, in Germany and the army grows from 82,000 to 85,000. That seems to be a responsible thing to do uh, in the current uncertainty and would send something of a message to Mr Putin that the world 
and the West in particular, is not as weak as he thinks it is. And when you commanded NATO's Allied Rapid Reaction headquarters in Germany, you began the planning for the move back to the UK. With hindsight, do you think that was a bad idea? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, to have moved the headquarters Allied Rapid Reaction Corps back, and it's at, uh, in Gloucestershire now in Imgem lines, is absolutely the right thing to do, as indeed moving the majority of our troops back is the right thing to do. But it's in the light of the current circumstances that we're in that I'm making this call for the regular army to be 3,000 larger. Now, um, whether that extra 3,000 is in Germany or in the United Kingdom is entirely a matter for the government. But given that we have, as I said, 10,000, 12,000 troops still in Germany in well-found barracks, it would seem to me that the most sensible thing to do to grow the army by 3,000 is to leave 3,000 let's say, in either Paderborn, Senelager, in one of those very well-found garrisons that we have in Germany. That seems to make sense. And you say it's to send a message to Vladimir Putin. What kind of message? It sends the message that the West takes security and defence seriously. I'm not for a moment suggesting that an extra 3,000 troops would make a significant difference um, on a battlefield. But if you view these things from the Kremlin... Uh, what uh, Mr Putin will have seen over many years is the West taking a successive uh, peace dividend from the end of the Cold War, uh, planning now to take a major peace dividend at the end of the Afghan operations. And that's made him more confident, that's made him encouraged, and that's why he is acting in the way that he is in Ukraine over Crimea and might well act uh, elsewhere. So it's sending a message that uh, whether it's Russia, whether it's someone else, somewhere else, we need to make sure that our defence is secure, our military forces are strong, and this must be the end of cuts. And in fact, we should be thinking about reversing some uh, of those cuts, hence the 3,000 uplift. That was the former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dunnett, speaking to me earlier. Christopher, he said it was the responsible approach, this idea. Do you think anyone's going to listen to this approach? Well, I think a lot of people would listen to the approach. I mean, I'm not suggesting it's going to be done, I don't think it will be done. But first of all, there'd be a group of people who find it rather scary. And they would say, I thought we weren't going to have any military response. And it's OK, you're only leaving 3,000 guys in, in well-founded accommodations, he puts it. Um, but it could be rather scary. The other thing is, what kind of message do you, uh, does this send, as you asked him? Um, I think there are a couple of bits missing there from him. It would probably cheer up the polls. Hmm. Um, it wouldn't uh, actually get anything done. Excepting this, it would show that there was still a very strong... Uh, NATO and command system in which Britain was part of and that Britain was one of the few countries which willing to do anything about it and it'd be totally harmless, totally mm. harmless. Can I just say one thing when he was saying about, you know, you, you'd asked him about m moving back uh, the command, the Indeed, rapid reaction yes. command and did you notice where, I mean, you know where it is, uh, as he said, is Imgen Lines uh, mm. in Gloucester. Now, uh, I'll tell you, Imgen Lines is named after the Imgen River, which was one of the uh, actions of the, of the Gloucester Regiment uh, in Korea, Indeed. against North Korea. What was interesting about that, that war was a United Nations reaction to something not dissimilar to that's gone on mm. in Eastern Europe mm. today. Nothing to do with it, of course, 
But it's interesting how history refuses to go away. Yeah, and let's just talk about, about NATO and their response, though. Just talk us through what they have been doing. NATO has met uh, about eight or nine times. Mm. There's been a very good response from... And don't forget, NATO is a political organisation mainly. And then you've got the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, uh, etc., who, who, who is the muscle side of it all. Um, NATO has to look along on what its politicians are saying. And they're basically saying... For example, Russia joins NATO within a Russia-NATO council. And they're going to start freezing that. They're going to stop mm. what the Russians can actually join into. And that is a very important thing for not so much Putin, because he runs his own show, but for Putin's army uh, council. Mm. And they regard NATO as a very important uh, forum in which, to, in which to be. Well, and so it may be very difficult for people actually in the Kremlin rather than anywhere else. Well, let's now just hear from NATO's Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe and what he's been telling us. General Sir Richard Shiref. In terms of uh, Ukraine, it's thinking. It's monitoring. Uh, it's how whatever support that we can give to a valued NATO partner uh, in accordance with the direction we get from the North Atlantic Council in, uh, in, in Brussels. Um, but at the same time, of course, as I say, we have contingency plans. Our absolute priority remains defence of the alliance. Uh, what we have seen uh, in the last few weeks in uh, Ukraine, in Crimea, has been a direct threat to Euro-Atlantic security. Uh, and this is a very timely moment, I think, for the nations of NATO uh, to sit up, to take notice, to recognise that security in Europe is by no means guaranteed uh, and that security comes at a price in terms of defence budgets, uh, capabilities uh, and equipment. General Sir Richard Shiref, Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe. Christopher, could this be the push that prompts NATO countries to spend more? Well, they may not spend more, but I'll tell you something. Uh, General Richard's absolutely, you know, is on the money here. Um, Defence ministers are facing a hard time from all treasuries. doesn't matter which country you're in, especially the United Kingdom. You know, trying to get their money up by 2% and it ain't working at the moment. There is no way that they could have... It's a peaceful thing that's gone on so far militarily, but there's no way a treasury could ignore what's going on. So the defence minister now goes along to the Chancellor of the Exchequer or in whichever country, mm. and he says, look, Gov, there you can see something can pop up and we are ill-prepared. Don't do any more cuts, not for the moment anyway. And anything that's not for the moment is good news. Well, it's against this backdrop that politicians on both sides of the Commons have been thinking about the next stage of reshuffling and structuring British forces with the long-term aim of getting the army right by 2020 and force projection at sea in place 10 years later. I've been talking to the Shadow Defence Secretary Vernon Coker. I asked him whether he thought Britain can be successful in diplomacy if it hasn't got the military clout to back it up. First of all, we have to define for ourselves, which is, again, what I was saying today, what our strategic objectives actually are. What is it that we want to do across the world, both in Europe, the Middle East, and, and across the world, both in terms of hard power, military power, but also in terms of what we want to do working through the United Nations, uh, the, the, the soft power. Part of that, obviously, you have to retain a capability and capacity to do something uh, yourself, should you choose uh, to do so, and hence what I was saying today about the, the, about the aircraft carriers. But also, alongside that, uh, you have to work with your allies, you have to work with others. And I was stressing the importance of our relationship uh, with the United States and the importance of the relationship that we have with some of our European partners. And it's through those alliances that we can also 
uh, help achieve what it is we want to do through our defence as well as action we may take ourselves. You talk about, about having an idea of the strategy of being able to pinpoint future risks. In that light, nobody could really see what was going to happen in Syria, with the Arab Spring, with what's happening now in Ukraine. Do you think the last defence review went too far in cutting capabilities? Well, I think what the last defence review did, which was totally the wrong way round, was it said, this is the budget that we've got, uh, and then cut uh, the defence uh, equipment, cut what it was doing to actually meet the budget. And for me, that's totally the wrong way round. And it's not just me, that's what the Defence Select Committee said. They said you should start with a strategy. What are, th what are the threats that you are facing and may face in, th in the future, and you should also factor into that the unpredictability of things that happen. So nobody was predicting what happened with respect to the Arab Spring. Nobody was predicting what has happened with respect to Crimea. Uh, and so, as I say, you have to have flexibility and adaptability in your armed forces to respond not only to threats as they are today, but threats in the future. And that's also the argument for the deterrent. That was the Shadow Defence Secretary Vernon Coker speaking to me earlier. Christopher, it seems it's all about knowing what the threats are a decade from now. How can you possibly do that? You can't know what the threats are going to be. Can you be prepared for all the potential ones, though? It's interesting thought that if you, depending on the size of your forces, for example, you've got to remember one thing. You don't always fight the First Division. It's quite mm -hmm. often wars. If you look at wars over the past sort of... 30 years that we've been involved in, you're fighting actually the second division, third division uh, all the time. But you can't devise an, an army, a navy and an air force for each possibility. So more and more, NATO becomes important as, an, as a NATO group, as we've seen in recently, right out of area in Afghanistan. What uh, Barack Obama calls the coalition of the willing in other words, joining with different countries, maybe not the whole bunch, not the whole group of NATO, but maybe three or four countries, that becomes important. So you look at what you've got and you say, right, to protect our own interests, and don't forget the United Kingdom's got all sorts of uh, colonial uh, contracts that it has to fulfil itself. What do you do? You say, look, how do we, what do we need to do this uh, to do that for? Um, where is our biggest threat for the moment? Well, mm. One of our biggest threats is, is frankly, what happens to oil? And so we need a navy to be around the corner in on, on the edges of the Chateau Rab water, waterway, uh, and you, to put one frigate in there, you need five in, in backup, etc. So you're starting to build a concept for the navy, yeah. and then you build the concept uh, for for the army. What do you want? A rapid reaction okay. uh, force, more than else. So in the end, you say, right, we've got X number of millions. This is what we've got. Where do we fit elsewhere? And that is what Vernon Coke uh, is really, really talking about. It makes total sense. And talking of the threats, the, the, the new one that everyone has been talking about a little bit and research going into it is climate change. Climate change becomes extraordinarily important and will do uh, more and more in the future. Um, and there are, but how do you prepare for that? Well, you repair. You prepare for it by, interestingly, by getting your military people to talk to governments about it. I'm on two climate change groups. One is in Europe and one at the moment next on Monday reports in uh, the International uh, Climate Change Group, which reports in, in Yokohama for a whole uh, uh, week. We can prepare reports. My feeling is that those reports are going to be adopted by the military. So when the military goes to the Defence Secretary and say, this is why we need more money, he can then go to the Prime Minister and says, listen... You have not thought of this one through, but our people are saying it's a military threat. And it would be a very brave Prime Minister at the moment 
who would disregard a military threat. And that's what climate change is, because it disrupts all sorts of facilities to, to organise yourself, communications, etc. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The army can't wait for the theorists and politicians to get it right. The future's about knowing which forces are needed and what to do with them. The restructuring has already begun, and this week the army unveiled a brand new command. Our reporter Toby Sadler has been to see it. Upaven Airfield in Wiltshire has been transformed into a showroom for the army. Aircraft hangars and marquees are stuffed with all kinds of military hardware, all on display for the media and army dignitaries. This is Force Troops Command. That's 22,000 regular troops, 14,000 reservists and almost half of all the Army's equipment. Major General Tim Radford is in charge of it. The fact that we've now got all the guns in the British Army, all the engineers, all the Royal Signals grouped together means that we now are in a position to give them that command coherence. We can look after them better and the soldiers within the brigades. It means that we can prioritise the resources that go out to support the combat divisions. Force Troops Command is all about specialists, but this is an army that realises it can't do everything it wants. Instead, it will be sharing its specialist skills to empower the UK's allies and keep them on side. Bomb disposal is one thing the army is happy to share. Major Matt Long is from 821 EOD and Search Squadron. We deployed to Libya uh, with a specialist team to set up an EOD and IED school. Um, We've uh, had an individual out in Pakistan Uh, assisting the Pakistani army uh, in training for EOD and IED. And also uh, we sent a small team to Nepal. Cultural diplomacy is also key to success. This is where Force Troops Command can also pull in experts from the Royal Air Force and Royal Navy. Lieutenant Commander James Hancock is from the Defence Cultural Specialist Unit. Whether or not that's just providing him as an interpreting capability so that he can better communicate with people, or whether it's actually explaining what the dynamic looks like, what the tribal system looks like in a particular region. Force Troops Command, or FTC, is also key to the defence of the UK. For example, they have the rapier missiles used to protect the Olympics. The command structure is in place now, but the FTC still needs a few finishing touches. It will be fully operational in 2015. Toby Sadler reporting. Christopher, the way forward then? I think it's the gentle way forward, and and the most important thing, I think, is this. Uh, You've got a lot of people who would have said, oh, you know, the army's all been uh, changed and the structure and the old regimental systems, which in fact haven't gone, but they're accused of going. Eventually, a young soldier goes in to the services and he says, who's in command here? How do I work? If I'm sent anywhere... Who's in command? What they're telling me to do? What they're telling me they're going to do after that? If you haven't got the command, control, and the communication system in, which is what the uh, Toby's uh, report was talking about, mm. uh, then it doesn't matter how many soldiers you've got. Let's uh, move on to uh, something else that's uh, rather important to the forces: is the way they complain. Because there's a lament from the Service Complaints Commissioner. What's she been saying exactly? Well, basically, she, she's saying that it's a lot of rubbish. I mean, it's simply the, the system. Yeah, the system is rubbish, and it's going to she's change. Get, she's going to get her ombudsman, though, yeah, isn't she? She's going to get the ombudsman, but you try and get them through to an ombudsman on on, on his system. Yeah, uh, the thing, the figures that I find. In, in, interesting. You've got the army. It got a 12% increase in new service complaints. Mm. Uh, only, that was last year. Only 25, 25% of them, only a quarter of them, were actually resolved. The, arm, uh, the RAF, uh, they've got 35 fewer complaints. However, only 29% of them have been re- uh, re- resolved. Uh, the Navy sort of seems to sort things out rather in the old-fashioned way in the Navy. You've got a problem, though you haven't. 
Um, and so although uh, the uh, complaints were doubled, 78, nearly 80% of them mm. were resolved. It's not. It's it's a bad system. Let's just talk about uh, cuts now, not uh, defence cuts, but haircuts. Because uh, apparently, if you're a male in North Korea, you you have to have uh, the dear leader's haircut, which is uh, high and tight. Apparently, not not short back and sides. Uh, yeah. What's going on, Christopher? Well, I mean, up until now, if you were in Korea, there were 18 accepted styles of haircut from men and women. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's law. Uh, 18 of them. <laughs> Um, but if you're going to, it started up with. I thought there were only ten for men. It's even fewer. Yeah, even fewer now. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, what's happening is that the dear leader said, "Let all the students, because there are louts anyway, as we know, all students are. Are um, they've got to have a haircut like mine? Sort of profile. Here it comes." I'm not so. I'm not so particularly fussed. I mean, we can sort it's of a, take. It's a them. socialist haircut. It's supposed to be in keeping with the socialist way of life, or something like that. Well, I was that, reading. Yeah, well, that's a lot of Korean. What's it anyway? Because if you think about a socialist haircut, Karl Marx, long hair, beard, or, or moustaches. Lenin had a beard. Stalin had a moustache. Castro's got a beard, etc. <laughs> but I think that we ought. And to apparently, th- a lot of a lot of North Koreans don't like it because they think they look like a Chinese smuggler with this haircut. You've never seen a North Korean with a with a moustache. I don't anyway. think I've seen but a Chinese. Wait a minute, there's another side to this, isn't there? We take the mickey out of the uh, the deal leader. It's about power, isn't it? It is. Now, let's think about it. David, our own beloved leader, David Cameron, (laughs) had his hair changed, his hairstyle changed to give him a more sort of cool look. Mm -hmm. And having done that, his his crimper got an MBE. (laughs) Tony Blair had his hair changed. Margaret Thatcher very famously had her hair changed. Mm. Churchill didn't have to do it because he hadn't got any hair. But so, so, you know, before we have a go at the the North Korean guy, uh, let's just think, we are in this sort of image thing of, of hair. If you wanted to draw a picture of Napoleon is the hair that does it. Mm. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was at his hairdressers every single day in case he had to do a photo op. Incredible. So let's not let's let's not have a good go. But but also through history as well, it's been used as a tool, hasn't it? Collaborators had theirs cut off when they're when they're in in the Second World War, for example. Oh, the hair was shaved. And Mm. if you go back to uh, 13th century. Uh, and the the deportation of the Jews from England. They all had their hair shaved before they went. And there we go. Thanks for your time this week. We'll be back at the same time next week. Bye-bye for now.